Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 133, Love is Love. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're talking about the landmark case Goodridge v. Department of Public Health, which granted marriage rights to same-sex couples in Massachusetts in 2003. The November 18, 2003 decision was the first by U.S. state's highest court to find that same-sex couples had the right to marry. Despite numerous attempts to delay the ruling and to reverse it, the first marriage licenses were issued to same-sex couples on May 17, 2004. But before we talk about love and civil liberties, we want to take a moment to say thank you to Christine M., our latest supporter on Patreon. We have big plans for improvements we'd like to make to the podcast, from upgrading our podcast feed hosting, to redesigning the website, to subscribing to additional research databases. Supporting the show for as little as $2 a month will help us work toward those goals while at the same time helping us cover the existing costs of producing Hub History. Check out the support tiers and the fun rewards available to our sponsors by going to patreon.com slash hubhistory, or just go to hubhistory.com and click on support us. Now, without further ado, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Johnny Tremaine. As a little bit of backstory for this pick, I work for an organization that operates a summer camp, and we're in the midst of upgrading our library for this coming season. A call went out to staff, parents, and donors to donate their favorite books from their childhood and teen years. I immediately went to Amazon and ordered several books, which I am now reading before donating. So Johnny Tremaine is a nod to the notion that we ought to revisit some of those childhood books as adults with a new perspective. Johnny Tremaine is a work of historical fiction by Esther Forbes, intended for teenage readers, that's set in Boston prior to and during the outbreak of the American Revolution. The story begins on July 23, 1773, in the Boston silversmith shop of elderly Ephraim Lapham, where Johnny is a promising 14-year-old apprentice. It's understood that someday he will marry Mr. Lapham's granddaughter, Scylla, to keep the shop within the family. The shop soon receives a challenging and urgent order from wealthy merchant John Hancock to make a silver dish to replace one that Mr. Lapham had fashioned decades before. While preparing for Hancock's order, Johnny's hand is badly burned. With the hand crippled beyond use, he can no longer be a silversmith, and so he leaves the shop. Johnny settles into a job delivering a weekly newspaper, The Boston Observer. The Observer is a Whig publication and Johnny is introduced to the larger world of pre-revolutionary Boston politics by his new friend and melter, Rob Silsby, an older boy working for the paper. As months go by and tension between Whigs and Tories rises, Johnny becomes a dedicated Whig himself. Johnny and Rob take part in the Boston Tea Party, and as I am sure our listeners know, Britain sends an army to occupy Boston and closes Boston's port in retaliation. Johnny acts as a spy for the Sons of Liberty when, in addition to his newspaper deliveries, he's paid by British officers to carry their letters to outlying towns. He becomes a trusted member, working with prominent Whig leaders John Hancock, Samuel Adams, Paul Revere, and Dr. Joseph Warren. The novel reaches its climax in April of 1775 with the outbreak and immediate aftermath of the Battles of Lexington and Concord. But, of course, that is really just the beginning. We'll include a link to purchase Johnny Tremaine in this week's show notes. 
And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring an open house on May 29th at Old South Meeting House from 5 to 6 p.m. in celebration of Preservation Month. The description on Old South's website tells us, Join Old South Meeting House staff and neighbors for light refreshments, a short lecture at 515 on the 1729 historic site's fascinating historic preservation story, and an opportunity to explore the permanent exhibition, Voices of Protest, at your leisure. Learn why we have an 18th century horseshoe in our permanent exhibits, how the Meeting House is indebted to a fire engine from New Hampshire, how Louisa May Alcott and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow supported the Meeting House's preservation in the late 1800s, why William Lloyd Garrison didn't, and how this building's preservation story continues as it approaches its 300th birthday. Advanced registration is not required, and admission is free thanks to funding from the Lowell Institute. We'll have a link to more information in this week's show notes. And now it's time for this week's main topic. The path to marriage equality in Massachusetts begins with John Adams. In the spring of 1775, Adams took the position that each state should call a special convention to write a constitution and then submit it to a popular vote. He told the Continental Congress that, We must realize the theories of the wisest writers and invite the people to erect the whole building with their own hands upon the broadest foundation. This could be done only by conventions of representatives chosen by the people. Congress ought now to recommend to the people of every colony to call such conventions immediately and set up governments of their own, under their own authority, for the people were the source of all authority and the origin of all power. The legislative body of Massachusetts, known as the Massachusetts General Court, instead drafted its own version of a constitution and submitted it to the voters, who rejected it in 1778. That version did not provide for the separation of powers, nor did it include a statement of individual rights. The general court then organized the election of delegates from each town to participate in a convention that would draft a constitution and submit their own work to a popular vote, with the understanding that its adoption would require approval by two-thirds of the voters. The Constitutional Convention met in Cambridge in September of 1779. The convention sat from September 1st to October 30th. Its 312 members chose a committee of 30 members to prepare a new constitution and declaration of rights. That committee asked Adams to draft a declaration. It appointed a subcommittee of James Bowdoin, Samuel Adams, and John Adams to draft the constitution, and the trio delegated the drafting to John Adams alone, in his words, a sub-subcommittee of one. Male voters 21 years or older ratified the Constitution and Declaration of Rights at the convention on June 15, 1780, and it became effective on October 25th. Adams knew that if he included an outright ban of slavery, the Constitution would not pass. Instead, he drafted the following text into Article 1. All men are born free and equal, and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, in fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. Quickly, this language was put to the test by an enslaved woman named Elizabeth Freeman. Freeman was born around 1744 and enslaved at the farm of Peter Hogeboom in Claverack, New York, where she was given the name Bet. When Hogeboom's daughter Hannah married John Ashley of Sheffield, Massachusetts, Hogeboom gave Bet, around seven years old, to Hannah and her husband. 
Freeman remained with them until 1781, during which time she had a child, Little Bet. In 1780, Freeman heard the newly ratified Massachusetts Constitution read at a public gathering in Sheffield and was inspired by the declaration that all men are born free and equal with a right to happiness. Bet sought the counsel of a young abolition-minded lawyer named Theodore Sedgwick to help her sue for freedom in court. According to Catherine Sedgwick's account, she told him, I heard that paper read yesterday that says all men are created equal and that every man has a right to freedom. I'm not a dumb critter. Won't the law give me my freedom? After much deliberation, Sedgwick accepted her case, as well as that of Brahm, another of Ashley's enslaved people. He enlisted the aid of Tapping Reeve, the founder of Litchfield Law School, one of America's earliest law schools located in Litchfield, Connecticut. They were two of the top lawyers in Massachusetts, and Sedgwick later served as a U.S. senator. The case of Brom and Bett v. Ashley was heard in August of 1781 before the County Court of Common Pleas in Great Barrington. Sedgwick and Reeve asserted that the constitutional provision that all men are born free and equal effectively abolished slavery in the state. When the jury ruled in Bett's favor, she became the first African-American woman to be set free under the Massachusetts state constitution. The jury found that Brahm and Bett are not, nor were they at the time of the purchase of the original writ, the legal Negro of the said John Ashley. The court assessed damages of 30 shillings and awarded both plaintiffs compensation for their labor. Ashley initially appealed the decision, but a month later dropped his appeal, apparently having decided the court's ruling on the constitutionality of slavery was final and binding. After the ruling, Bett took the name Elizabeth Freeman. Although Ashley asked her to return to his house and work for wages, she chose to work in attorney Sedgwick's household. She worked for his family until 1808 as a senior servant and governess to the Sedgwick children, who called her Mum Bet. Freeman's real age was never known, but an estimate on her tombstone puts her age at about 85. She died in December 1829 and was buried at the Sedgwick family plot in Stockbridge. Freeman remains the only non-Sedgwick buried in the Sedgwick plot. They provided a tombstone inscribed as follows. Elizabeth Freeman, also known by the name of Mum Bet, died December 28, 1829. Her supposed age was 85 years. She was born a slave and remained a slave for nearly 30 years. She could neither read nor write, yet in her own sphere she had no superior or equal. She neither wasted time nor property. She never violated a trust nor failed to perform a duty. In every situation of domestic trial, she was the most efficient helper and the tenderest friend. Good mother, farewell. Elizabeth Freeman's case was just the first of many in which Adams' words would be used to establish civil liberties in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. On April 11, 2001, gay and lesbian advocates and defenders, known as GLAD, sued the Massachusetts Department of Health in Superior Court on behalf of seven same-sex couples, all residents of Massachusetts, who had been denied marriage licenses in March and April of 2001. The plaintiffs were... Gloria Bailey and Linda Davies, Maureen Broadoff and Ellen Wade, Hillary Goodridge and Julie Goodridge, Gary Chalmers and Richard Linnell, Heidi Norton and Gina Smith, Michael Horgan and Edward Balmelli, and David Wilson and Robert Compton. All the plaintiffs had been in long-term relationships with their partners, and four of the couples were raising a total of five children. 
The department's responsibilities included setting the policies under which city and town clerks issue marriage licenses. After holding a hearing in March of 2002, at which GLAD attorney Jennifer Levi argued on behalf of the plaintiff couples, Superior Court Judge Thomas Connolly ruled in favor of the Department of Health on May 7, 2002. He wrote, While this court understands the reasons for the plaintiff's request to reverse the Commonwealth's centuries-old legal tradition of restricting marriage to opposite-sex couples, their request should be directed to the legislature, not the courts. He noted that the legislature had recently defeated same-sex marriage legislation and defended that as a rational decision rooted in the historical definition of marriage and its association with child-rearing. Recognizing that procreation is marriage's central purpose, it is rational for the legislature to limit marriage to opposite-sex couples who, theoretically, are capable of procreation. Moreover, Because same-sex couples are unable to procreate on their own and therefore must rely on inherently more cumbersome means of having children, it is also rational to assume that same-sex couples are less likely to have children, or at least to have as many children as opposite-sex couples. We take issue with this reasoning as a childless couple after eight years of marriage. The plaintiffs appealed directly to the Supreme Judicial Court, the SJC, which heard arguments on March 4, 2003. Mary Bonato of GLAD argued the case for the plaintiffs. Assistant Attorney General Judith Yagman represented the DPH. Massachusetts Attorney General Tom Riley argued in his brief that the court should defer to the legislature's judgment of the broader public interest and recognize that same-sex couples cannot procreate on their own and therefore cannot accomplish the main object of marriage as historically understood. In a 50-page 4-3 ruling on November 18, 2003, the SJC said it was asked to determine whether Massachusetts may deny the protections, benefits, and obligations conferred by civil marriage to two individuals of the same sex who wish to marry. We conclude that it may not. The Massachusetts Constitution affirms the dignity and equality of all individuals. It forbids the creation of second-class citizens. Thanks, John Adams. The plaintiffs had asked the court to say that denying marriage licenses to same-sex couples violated Massachusetts law. Instead, the opinion said, We declare that barring an individual from the protections, benefits, and obligations of civil marriage solely because that person would marry a person of the same sex violates the Massachusetts Constitution. The court stayed the implementation of its ruling for 180 days to allow the state legislature to take such action as it may deem appropriate in light of this opinion. Reactions included speculation that the legislature could follow Vermont's example and enact civil unions in that time period. But State Senate President Robert Travellini said that he thought the strength of the language and the depth of the decision showed that marriage and no substitute is the wish of the court. Chief Justice Margaret Marshall wrote the majority opinion, in which Justices Roderick L. Ireland, Judith A. Cowan, and John M. Greeney joined. Although the arguments in the decision turned entirely on questions of state law, She cited, in her discussion of the court's duty, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision the previous June in Lawrence v. Texas, which invalidated sodomy laws. Our concern is with the Massachusetts Constitution as a charter of governance for every person properly within its reach. Our obligation is to define the liberty of all, not to mandate our own moral code. 
She rejected the plaintiff's contention that the state's marriage licensing law, which mentions marriage but never the gender of the parties, could be interpreted to permit same-sex marriages. The lack of a definition, she wrote, shows the legislature meant marriage in the terms common law and quotidian meaning. Turning to whether the state's denial of marriage rights to same-sex couples violated the state constitution's guarantee of equal protection and due process, she noted that the Massachusetts Constitution protects matters of personal liberty against government incursion as zealously, and often more so, than does the federal constitution, even where both constitutions employ essentially the same language. Discussing the proper standard for review, she found that the court did not need to consider whether the plaintiff's claim merited strict scrutiny, a more thorough than the usual standard of review, because the state's marriage policy did not meet the most basic standard of review, rational basis. She then considered and dismissed the three rationales the DPH offered for its marriage licensing policy. One, providing a favorable setting for procreation. Two, ensuring the optimal setting for child-rearing, which the department defines as a two-parent family with one parent of each sex, and three, preserving scarce state and private financial resources. The first, she wrote, incorrectly posits that the state privileges procreative heterosexual intercourse between married people. Rather, fertility is not a condition of marriage, nor is it grounds for divorce. People who have never consummated their marriage and never plan to may be and stay married. The misconception that marriage is procreation, she wrote, confers an official stamp of approval on the destructive stereotype that same-sex relationships are inherently unstable and inferior to opposite-sex relationships and not worthy of respect. The second, the marriage of a man and a woman as the optimal setting for child-rearing, a claim she said many Massachusetts statutes and the notion of the best interests of the child refuted, she found irrelevant, and that denying marriage licenses to one class of persons does not affect the marriage patterns of the other class. She turned the argument against the DPH. The task of child-rearing for same-sex couples is made infinitely harder by their status as outliers to the marriage laws. She concluded that, It cannot be rational under our laws, and indeed it is not permitted to penalize children by depriving them of state benefits because the state disapproves of their parents' sexual orientation. She dismissed the third rationale as an unjustified generalization about the economic interdependence of same-sex partners. Later in the opinion, she summarized this analysis, saying the DPH's arguments were starkly at odds with the comprehensive network of vigorous, gender-neutral laws promoting stable families and the best interests of children. Addressing the concerns expressed in various amicus briefs about the potential harm same-sex marriage might cause to the institution of marriage, she wrote, Here, the plaintiffs seek only to be married, not to undermine the institution of civil marriage. They do not want marriage abolished. They do not attack the binary nature of marriage, the co-sanguinary provisions, or any of the other gatekeeping provisions of the marriage licensing law. Recognizing the right of an individual to marry a person of the same sex will not diminish the validity or dignity of opposite-sex marriage, any more than recognizing the right of an individual to marry a person of a different race devalues the marriage of a person who marries someone of her own race. If anything, Extending civil marriage to same-sex couples reinforces the importance of marriage to individuals and communities. That same-sex couples are willing to embrace marriage's solemn obligations of exclusivity, mutual support, and commitment to one another is a testament 
to the enduring place of marriage in our laws and in the human spirit. She then reviewed the history of constitutional law as a story of the extension of constitutional rights and protections to people once ignored or excluded, quoting the U.S. Supreme Court opinion, U.S. v. Virginia. She reviewed several examples related to marriage, including married women acquiring legal status apart from their husbands, the invalidation of anti-miscegenation laws, and no-fault divorce. As for creating conflict with the laws of other states, she wrote, We would not presume to dictate how another state should respond to today's decision, but neither should considerations of comedy prevent us from according Massachusetts residents the full measure of protection available under the Massachusetts Constitution. The genius of our federal system is that each state's constitution has vitality specific to its own traditions, and that subject to the minimum requirements of the 14th Amendment, each state is free to address difficult issues of individual liberty in the manner that its own constitution demands. In summarizing the court's decision, Chief Justice Marshall wrote, The marriage ban works a deep and scarring hardship on a very real segment of the community for no rational reason. The absence of any reasonable relationship between, on the one hand, an absolute disqualification of same-sex couples who wish to enter into civil marriage, and, on the other, the protection of public health, safety, or general welfare, suggests that the marriage restriction is rooted in persistent prejudices against persons who are, or who are believed to be, homosexual. Limiting the protections, benefits, and obligations of civil marriage to opposite-sex couples violates the basic premises of individual liberty and equality under the law protected by the Massachusetts Constitution. Considering what relief to grant the plaintiffs, she noted that the Court of Appeal for Ontario had refined common law meaning of marriage and then provided the court's meaning. We construe civil marriage to mean the voluntary union of two persons as spouses, to the exclusion of all others. The Boston Globe reported on Republican Governor Mitt Romney's reaction the next day. I agree with 3,000 years of recorded history. I disagree with the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. But I can tell you that over the next several months, that I will work with legislative leaders and other legislators and community leaders to decide what kind of statute we can fashion which is consistent with the law. We obviously have to follow the law as provided by the Supreme Judicial Court, even if we don't agree with it. The SJC stayed implementation of its ruling for 180 days in order to allow the legislature to respond as it found necessary. On December 11, 2003, the state Senate asked the SJC whether establishing civil unions for same-sex couples would meet the ruling's requirements. The SJC replied on February 4, 2004, that civil unions would not suffice to satisfy its finding in Goodrich. The four justices who formed the majority in the Goodridge decision wrote, The dissimilitude between the two terms civil marriage and civil union is not innocuous. It is a considered choice of language that reflects a demonstrable assigning of same-sex, largely homosexual couples to second-class status. For no rational reason, the marriage laws of the Commonwealth discriminate against a defined class, no amount of tinkering with language will eradicate that stain. Governor Mitt Romney responded to the SJC's February 2004 statement that civil unions were an insufficient response to its ruling in Goodridge 
with a statement supporting an amendment to the Massachusetts state constitution to overrule the court's decision. His statement said, The people of Massachusetts should not be excluded from a decision as fundamental to our society as the definition of marriage. Despite Romney's urging, Attorney General Riley refused to ask the SJC to stay its decision, saying that implementation was not problematic and that a popular vote on the constitutional amendment was the only way to resolve the issue. On April 16, 2004, Romney asked the legislature to pass a law giving him the authority to request a stay. He said that the implementation of the SJC ruling presented legal complications, citing both a 1913 law that invalidates the marriage of non-residents if the marriage is invalid in their home state, and the possibility that a popular referendum on same-sex marriage might retroactively invalidate same-sex marriages. When it came time to implement the decision, the Massachusetts Town Clerks Association voiced concerns about the 1913 statute which was put in place to target interracial couples in the period before the U.S. Supreme Court legalized interracial marriage in Loving v. Virginia. They raised the issue for the first time on February 24th, reporting that some of them were receiving inquiries from out-of-state couples. New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer made the question more urgent when he issued a non-binding opinion on March 3rd that New York common law requires recognizing as valid a marriage validly executed in another state. On March 31st, Romney took the position that no other states recognized same-sex marriage and therefore residents of other states could not marry in Massachusetts, so the decision shouldn't be implemented at all. A.G. Riley took the position that 38 states expressly denied recognition to same-sex marriages and that the residents of the other states could obtain licenses. Localities that supported the right of same-sex couples to marry resisted both these interpretations. On April 11th, Provincetown's Board of Selectmen decided that their town clerk would approve marriage license applications from any couple that swore, as was customary, that their marriage was lawful. The town manager said, We've never been the marriage police with heterosexual couples, and we're not about to start with same-sex couples. Worcester's clerk took a similar position on April 16th. Before the end of the month, an investigation by the Boston Globe showed that since 1976, town clerks had been repeatedly instructed not to question applicants for marriage license about their eligibility. A spokesman for the governor said that the Goodrich decision changed the definition of marriage, it changed the way the new marriage forms look, and it changed the way city and town clerks will carry out the requirements of the law. When Romney suggested confusion over the 1913 law justified postponing the implementation of Goodrich, Mary Bonato, the lawyer who successfully argued Goodridge, suggested he get the law repealed. If he's so concerned about problems, he can file an emergency bill to repeal that law. Massachusetts has basically said discriminating against people of the same sex is unconstitutional. So why should we try so hard to uphold another state's discriminatory law? Under the governor's logic, if some state again started banning marriages between Catholics and Protestants, then would Massachusetts enforce that? In an interview on April 23rd, Romney said, Massachusetts should not become the Las Vegas of same-sex marriage. We do not intend to export our marriage confusion to the entire nation. Denying licenses to all out-of-state couples became known as the Romney Plan. Yet, the governor's legal counsel, Daniel Winslow, warned that a justice of the peace who could not in good conscience officiate at a same-sex wedding should resign. 
On May 4th, when the Romney administration began training clerks to handle applications from same-sex couples, a Boston Globe report called it a major shift from the governor's earlier stance on enforcing limitations on licensing gay marriage. The new forms were gender-neutral, identifying the applicants as Party A and Party B, and asking each to check a box for either male or female. Clerks could require proof of residency if they asked that of all couples, but needed only to have applicants swear that there were no legal impediments to their marrying in Massachusetts. Some towns and clerks announced plans to knowingly issue licenses to out-of-staters, including Provincetown, Worcester, and Somerville. On May 16, 2004, Cambridge, which the New York Times described as having a well-known taste for erudite rebelliousness, decorated the wooden staircases of City Hall with white organza. Hundreds of applicants and supporters gathered in the street. City officials opened the building at 12.01 a.m. May 17th, and 262 couples obtained licenses, starting with Marsha Hams and Susan Shepard. The first to wed in Cambridge were Tanya McCloskey and Marsha Kadish at 9.15 a.m. Cambridge City Clerk Margaret Drury was the first city clerk in the U.S. to perform a legal same-sex marriage. Massachusetts has a three-day waiting period before issuing marriage licenses, but many couples obtained waivers of the waiting period in order to be wed as soon as possible. At Boston City Hall, Mayor Tom Menino greeted three of the couples who were plaintiffs in Goodridge and said, We've broken down the barrier. I'm so proud of these people. I am very proud to be mayor of the city today. The first to marry in Boston City Hall were Tom Weichel and Joe Rogers, who lined up for their license application at 5.30 a.m., and were wed at about 11 a.m. by Boston City Clerk. Rejecting the governor's insistence that the 1913 statute be respected, Somerville Mayor Joseph Curditone addressed a crowd of same-sex couples that included several from New York gathered in front of Town Hall at 8 a.m. No matter who you are or where you come from, if you fill out the application, you will be given a license to marry. Those of you from out of state, welcome to Somerville. The seven couples who were party to the Goodridge lawsuit were all wed on May 17th, beginning with Robert Compton and David Wilson at Boston's Arlington Street Church. Opponents of the decision asked federal courts to overrule. A suit filed by a conservative nonprofit, Liberty Council, on behalf of the Catholic Action League and 11 members of the legislature argued that the SJC had deprived the people of Massachusetts of their right to a Republican form of government as guaranteed by Article 4 of the U.S. Constitution when it refused to stay its decision to allow for a referendum to amend the state constitution. In May 2004, U.S. District Court Judge Joseph Toro denied their request for an injunction delaying implementation of the decision, as did the First Circuit Court of Appeals in June. The Supreme Court declined to hear the case without comment in November. On June 17, 2004, GLAD filed another suit challenging the 1913 law on behalf of eight same-sex couples with ties to Massachusetts, but who were not residents of the state. On March 30, 2006, the SJC upheld the law's application to marriages of same-sex couples in Cote Whitaker v. Department of Public Health though the decision was complicated by uncertainty about the recognition of same-sex marriages with New York and Rhode Island. The law was repealed on July 31, 2008. Opponents of same-sex marriage sought to reverse the Goodrich decision by amending the state constitution, an extended process in Massachusetts requiring repeated approval by the legislature before being put to a popular vote. 
they used each of the two methods the Massachusetts Constitution provides. First, legislators devised their own compromise language that banned same-sex marriage and permitted civil unions, with the proviso that same-sex civil unions would not qualify as marriages for federal purposes. That proposed amendment needed to be approved by a majority vote in two successive joint sessions of the legislature. But after passing the first time, it failed the second time on September 14, 2005, when the compromise collapsed. Second, opponents of same-sex marriage proposed language defining marriage as the union of a man and a woman, making no reference to civil unions. By gathering enough signatures on petitions, their amendment required a vote of just 25% of the legislators in two successive joint sessions of the legislature. This amendment received the necessary votes the first time, but failed the second time when 45 legislators voted for the amendment and 151 against it on June 14, 2007. In 2015, in Obergefell v. Hodges, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that the fundamental right to marry is guaranteed to same-sex couples by both the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. The 5-4 ruling requires all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and the insular areas, like Puerto Rico or Guam, to perform and recognize the marriages of same-sex couples on the same terms and the same conditions as the marriages of opposite-sex couples, with all the accompanying rights and responsibilities. Justice Kennedy wrote for the court, No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than they once were. As some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. We're going to close this episode with a passage from the Goodridge decision that we included in our own wedding ceremony. Civil marriage is at once a deeply personal commitment to another human being and a highly public celebration of the ideals of mutuality, companionship, intimacy, fidelity, and family. It is an association that promotes a way of life, not causes, a harmony in living, not political faiths, a bilateral loyalty, not commercial or social projects. Because it fulfills yearnings for security, safe haven, and connection that express our common humanity, civil marriage is an esteemed institution, and the decision whether and whom to marry is among life's momentous acts of self-definition. To learn more about marriage equality in Massachusetts, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 134. We'll have links to media coverage of the decision and the text of Chief Justice Marshall's decision. We'll also include three more recent updates, including a reflection on the case at the 10-year anniversary, an interview with Chief Justice Marshall, and a recent NPR piece detailing the impact the case had on the Goodridge family. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Johnny Tremaine, this week's Boston Book Club pick. We've fallen a bit behind on listener feedback, so we have a few things to share this week. 
Back in our show about the coin theft at the Harvard Fog Museum, our Boston Book Club pick was a 4D puzzle of Boston. That episode inspired the Boston Book Blog to tweet, Hey, did you hear us get a shout out on the Hub History podcast a few weeks back? Because we recommended a nerdy Boston puzzle to Jake. Take a listen and keep listening because they have great Boston history content. After our show about John Wilkes Booth and Abraham Lincoln in Boston, our friend John Adams weighed in on Booth's acting style and popularity with the ladies. I used to say for modern audiences, John Wilkes Booth equals Tom Cruise, both actors who like physicality, easy on the eyes, but then that shows my age, so I've updated it to Zac Efron for the youngsters. And Christine M., our latest Patreon supporter, also tweeted, By the way, if you're interested in the agricultural history of Greater Boston, I recommend Hub History Episode 99. That was our show about Brighton's history as a cattle town. And if you like the show, they are on Patreon now. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I am happy to recommend this one. A couple of listeners reacted to episode 132, where we discussed the 1745 siege where a Massachusetts army seized the strongest fortress in North America from the French. Carl is a professor of early American history, so we're taking his tweet as confirmation that we didn't mess up the history too badly. Carl said, Listen to the podcast, then visit Fortress Lewisburg. It's an excellent public history site. Especially impressed during my last visit that the rum tasting included an overview of the direct connection between rum production and consumption and the transatlantic slave trade. Suzanne also said, Looking forward to listening to this podcast. I visited Lewisburg a few years ago, and it was so interesting. I was unaware of the importance of Lewisburg until that trip. In fact, that trip made me realize how much New England's history is really intertwined with the maritime provinces. I guess our takeaway from this week's listener feedback is that we need to start planning a trip to Lewisburg. We enjoy getting listener feedback, whether you loved the episode or just liked it a lot. We're happy to hear your episode suggestions, factual corrections, and alternate sources that we may have missed. If you want to leave us some feedback on this show or any other, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We also have a voicemail line at 617-383-9255 where you can call and leave us a message. We'd love to get some audio feedback that we can share in a future episode. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating and reviewing the show. It's one of the best ways to help others discover us. That's all for now. We'll be back next week with National Park Service Ranger Sean Quigley, who's going to tell us about how the Underground Railroad once ran right through Boston Harbor. <laughs>